0: If you wanted to look at the surface of the moon, would you use binoculars or a telescope? Uh, That's pretty obvious.
1: A telescope.
0: Right. But what if you didn't have a telescope? Would binoculars do the job?
1: I mean, binoculars would be better than just my eye. They would probably be better than my phone, too. But do you think
0: you could see with the same level of clarity in terms of the surface of the moon?
1: Absolutely not.
0: Then we can agree that having the right tools for the job is important. It's important in astronomy. It's important even if it's just a backyard hobby. And it's really important when you're testing chemicals for safety, especially when the public's health is at risk.
1: So if we're not using the right tools, then maybe it is time to talk about how we test chemicals for safety. And whether we're using binoculars or telescopes.
0: This is exactly the story of the Clarity BPA study and how it was designed to answer some big questions about chemical safety testing using one of the most infamous endocrine disruptors, bisphenol A. I'm Jillian
1: and I'm Mayura.
0: And on this episode of A Daily Dose, we're going to break down the clarity study and talk about why there continues to be controversy swirling around the chemical BPA. We spoke with Dr. Jerry Heindel, a program official who recently retired from the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences and is now with Commonweal, a science and advocacy organization. In his last years before retiring from the NIEHS, Dr. Heindel oversaw the Clarity Project, so he has firsthand insights into its strengths, and also where it may have fallen short. We also talked with Dr. Pat Hunt, a professor from Washington State University who has studied BPA for years and has carefully examined the results from the Clarity study. What we learned about the methods that are used to evaluate chemicals was eye-opening, to say the least. Let me start by telling you a bit about how a chemical is tested for safety, or rather, how a chemical is evaluated for hazards. When a regulatory agency like the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, or the Food Drug Administration, FDA, wants to evaluate a chemical, they look at the results of what are called guideline studies. Those studies are conducted according to test guidelines, which are well-described methods for how the study should be done. Guideline studies are also normally conducted according to something called the GLP, or Good Laboratory Practices. Although GLP sounds very fancy, it's actually quite simple.
2: Good Laboratory Practices means you have good note-taking. You have to be very careful. You have to know which animals are which and weigh them all the time and write down all the weights and be very careful so that somebody could go back and replicate your experiment from your very detailed, organized notes.
1: So I imagine the test guidelines provide information about what kinds of animals should be used and how the chemicals should be administered to the animals? That's right. And it's even
0: more detailed than that. The guidelines provide guidance for the doses that should be used, the number of doses, and the number of animals per group. They set rules for how long the animals should be exposed and when the animals should be euthanized. And perhaps most important of all, the guidelines tell researchers which organs should be collected and how those organs should be evaluated.
1: It sounds more complicated
0: now. Well, it is and it isn't. In the case of BPA, Bisphenyl A, there had been a few guideline studies that were conducted prior to the CLARITY study.
1: Only a few? I thought BPA was one of those very well-studied chemicals. It is. There are literally hundreds of
0: studies that have looked at the effects of BPA on rodents, but most of them were not guideline
1: studies. What does it mean to not be a guideline study? Those hundreds of studies were just done nilly-willy without following any rules? Absolutely
0: not. Just because a study doesn't follow a guideline doesn't mean that it wasn't well-designed or well-controlled. Rather, those hundreds of studies that showed harm from BPA were actually performed in academic labs with the intention of evaluating very specific questions, and many of them were focused on disease-relevant endpoints.
1: Oh, of course. That's what I would expect. Studies should examine health outcomes in animals that are relevant to the kinds of diseases that we see in people. That's what you might think, and
0: that's what makes sense to all of us. But it's not what happens in the guideline
1: studies. What kinds of outcomes are evaluated in a guideline study, then? They look at things like organ weights. Wait, so if they want to see if a chemical harms the kidneys...
0: They weigh the kidneys and exposed mice or rats.
1: So if they want to see if the chemical harms the heart? They weigh the heart.
2: They're, They're very difficult to have some modern endpoints. So most studies that are done under GLP have endpoints that they're measuring at the end to look for the problem with the chemical that haven't changed in 50 years or more. They're very old-fashioned and not very sensitive, and they're not really disease-specific the way we think they should be. So actually, that leads us to, you know, why we wanted to do the clarity study. Right.
1: So as Dr. Heindel points out, Oregon weight really doesn't have much to do with how a disease is diagnosed in a person.
0: Dr. Pat Hunt also uses a great metaphor that helps to illustrate the differences between the kinds of studies used for regulatory purposes, those guideline studies, and the kinds of studies conducted in academic labs.
3: So maybe the easiest way to to describe it is it's, it's kind of like surveying a forest, you know, from a helicopter and saying, oh yeah, it looks like every tree is pretty green and they're pretty good versus going down into that, into that forest and sampling different trees and seeing whether they're being impacted by pests. Um, so, you know, the old school approach is using, you know, organ weights and, and, and looking at them histologically cross sections through, it, through an organ, through the liver, through the lungs, whatever to see if it looks like there's any gross abnormalities. Um, These chemicals induce some really interesting effects on cells and some of those effects you can't see at the gross level, but they can be incredibly powerful in terms of the organism. Um, And so, you know, I think basically that's the heart of it is we're trying to use an old fashioned set of regulatory tools that were designed to ask, is this toxic? You know, and we assume if it's toxic, it's gonna to kill the animals, it's gonna cause cancers, it's gonna cause things that we can see really visible changes. And these chemicals are kind of more insidious than that and can induce these you know, changes that aren't quite so visible, but are really powerful.
1: Clearly, we need to understand if environmental chemicals are toxic, But it sounds like many of the methods that have been used are old school, as Dr. Hunt points out. And those old school methods aren't very good at evaluating the more subtle kinds of changes that come after exposure to endocrine disruptors like BPA.
0: I think you're understanding where the controversy comes in. We don't expect people to die from exposures to BPA, at least not if exposures are low, Like we encounter when we are exposed from plastics or can linings or receipt paper. Instead, the effects of BPA are more subtle, like making small shifts in hormone levels, or the timing of puberty, or the risk of a disease like diabetes or cancer later in life. And this is why researchers have described the kinds of approaches in guideline studies as being like a pair of binoculars, If the disease-relevant approaches more commonly used by academic labs are actually better at evaluating the effects of chemicals, they would be more like telescopes. So, let me explain how the CLARITY study was intended to clear things up.
1: Wait, what is meant by CLARITY?
0: It stands for the Consorption Linking Academic and Regulatory Insights on BPA Toxicity. And just like its name suggests, the CLARITY study was designed to bring together a guideline study, which evaluated the effects of BPA on those standard measures of toxicity like organ weight with the disease-focused outcomes that are more commonly evaluated in academic labs.
2: And it's because the regulatory agencies love these GLP type studies. They think they are the best studies and they rely on them because they have a lot of animals per group and they know that they're really well done from that standpoint. But when the regulatory agencies look at the studies done by academic scientists, they they don't like those studies. They don't pay much attention to them. They're smaller studies. They are focused a lot of times on mechanisms and they're looking at disease endpoints and they're looking at very sensitive endpoints, epigenetic changes and different uh, changes in, in fat tissue and blood hormone levels and all kinds of things that they're, they don't do and they can't do in their normal guideline studies. So what we thought is we could maybe help the regulatory agencies accept the academic studies if we put the academic studies inside a guideline study. So then the regulatory agencies would be very happy with the design and all the note keeping of the guideline study. And then we would have the academic scientists take animals from that study and measure all of the very sensitive molecular and epigenetic and disease associated endpoints. And hopefully then the regulatory agency would pay more attention and believe that data because it came out of a GLP study. That was the the idea behind the clarity.
1: So if I'm understanding correctly, the CLARITY study took a guideline study which examines outcomes like organ weight and combined it with disease-focused outcomes, like the kinds that academics had previously used and had shown effects of BPA. That's right. In fact, a lab
0: associated with the U.S. FDA conducted the guideline study, and then samples were sent to 13 academic scientists who examined a wide range of outcomes, including some molecular and cellular markers of disease.
1: And was the study a success?
0: Well, that depends on who you ask. In fact, Dr. Heindel has a lot of positive things to say about the study.
2: The CLARITY study went off as planned, and all of the academic studies that, that, that were funded, they had already shown in their labs using their own animals and their models and all of that, that <clears throat> BPA would cause some specific endpoint or disease. And then we added that those data looking at that endpoint and those diseases in the clarity. And in many cases, the academic scientists indeed found those same endpoints and disease related endpoints in the clarity study. So, from the endpoint, the standpoint of the academic scientists, they they were quite happy. Not everything is exactly the same because the model was different, the doses were different, but enough of the studies found similar effects.
0: And Dr. Hunt also had some compliments for the study, but her viewpoint is a bit more nuanced because she has also pointed out that the full potential of the Clarity study to try and bridge the gap between the guideline study outcomes and the effects observed by academics has not been fully
3: realized. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of interesting data came out of Clarity. Have we used all of it um, to its potential? No have we answered the basic question that Clarity was designed to address, which is why do we get one answer with these standard toxicology tests and another answer with academic studies of specific organ systems like like our studies? Um, And I think that's that's an ongoing problem, but I think there's still more to come from the Clarity study. I think those types of studies where we can partner and work together are really important. I think that's the future for this field is trying to work um, together with industry, with federal regulatory bodies. Um, And I think even scientists working together, I think that's one of the really interesting things about these chemicals is because they impact so many different developing organ systems um, in, in the fetus that it's really important to partner with colleagues so that you can make the most of your studies. Uh, and we tried to do that with, with one very small study of, of rhesus monkeys that we did. And it was very, it was very useful to me to see that, that we could hand out tissues to other colleagues and they would get data and it made our small sample size much more powerful because we ended up with a lot more data.
1: It sounds like if you look at the academic studies, they found effects of BPA on disease-relevant outcomes. So, where exactly is the controversy? There
0: are two things that really became problems.
1: First is that the effects of BPA
0: on the endpoints that were evaluated by the academics, as well as some of the endpoints that were evaluated in the guideline study, didn't follow the typical expectation that the dose makes the poison. Although that wasn't surprising to the academics, many of whom are endocrinologists, it did not meet the expectations of the FDA
3: partners. Because these chemicals have hormone-like actions, um, the dose response is not the same as it as it is if you're simply looking at a chemical that's toxic or going to cause cancer. And if a little bit causes, you know, a few cancers, more is going to cause even more, and more is going to cause many, many more, Um, these, you know, just like hormones can work at, these chemicals can work at really, really small doses. Um, And I think that makes the, that's been a challenge for the regulatory agency because the assumption has been that we can look at a dose response and based on that, we can decide what a safe level is. And actually for these types of chemicals, the response is not always the same at a low dose and a higher dose. Sometimes you'll get a really strong response at a low dose. It'll go away as you move to a higher dose or it'll change at a higher dose. Um, That doesn't mean the higher dose is safer um, or that the low dose is safe. It just means that these things don't show the normal, you know, linear dose response that we're used to seeing when we think about toxicity and how much is gonna kill you.
0: And because the effects of BPA that were observed did not necessarily follow the expectation that the dose makes the poison, the FDA essentially dismissed these findings. They concluded that even though BPA had statistically significant effects at lower doses, because the same or worse effects were not seen at higher doses, those results should be ignored. Ultimately, they concluded that BPA does not have adverse effects at low doses.
2: So... There were effects in the academic studies that occurred only at the lower dose, for example, or only at the low dose and the second dose, but not at the high dose. And academic scientists uh, were very happy to see those results and said, that's perfectly okay. That's perfectly normal. We, we expect that, but the FDA said, no, it's not a nice linear dose, which we wanna see. So we don't count that. So from that standpoint, the, the results uh, weren't what we had hoped for because we had hoped we could convince the FDA that uh, these academic studies were, were okay and they were uh, actually valid uh, endpoints. But this idea of what's called the non-monotonic dose response where the dose effect changes over the dose uh, they don't accept that. And as long as they don't accept that, there's going to be a major problem between the FDA regulatory decisions and the research endpoints and, that are found in academic studies.
1: Okay. So the FDA ignored a whole bunch of effects that occurred after low dose exposures to BPA. That's super frustrating. But you said that there were two big problems with the clarity study. What's
0: the second one? The second is that the study was supposed to bring clarity. Clarity on whether BPA specifically has effects at low doses. But more importantly, clarity on whether the approaches that have been used for decades to evaluate chemical safety are actually effective, sensitive, and public health protective. If, for example, there was an agreement that those guideline studies are okay for evaluating toxicity, but that they would be improved by adding endpoints relevant to hormone receptor expression in the brain or number of stem cells in the prostate or shape of the mammary gland during puberty. Wouldn't you
1: want to make those improvements? Sure. I would expect to see some changes in the approaches after all this. So you're telling me there's really no clarity with the clarity study? Dr. Heindel continues
0: to worry that the data from the CLARITY study have not been evaluated as they were intended, because the study was really designed to combine the results from the guideline study and the academic studies. And this really hasn't happened yet, at least not by the FDA. Dr. Heindel also worries that there have been mixed messages from the different participants.
2: It's it's unclear how the public will, will look at this. Um, The academic researchers have written all of their data up and had their conclusions out there. The FDA wrote their part and their conclusions and they don't agree with those of the academic researchers. There was supposed to be a paper where all the data was put together and integrated Uh, But because of this problem with the dose responses, looking for a linear dose response and not accepting one that's not linear, uh, the the FDA was not willing to put all the data together and look at it together and and agree that there was some uh, effects there that were non-monotonic. So from that standpoint, there's some confusion likely. On the other hand, I think it was a worthwhile project because it showed a lot of things. It showed some of the problems with guideline studies. It showed some problems with the, how the FDA thinks. It showed uh, how well the academic researchers could do research and how it it matched uh, in the clarity design with what they found in their animal studies of their own, even though there were so many differences. So both sides is sort of a plus and minus there. I think it's worthwhile to do a study like this again, but if we anyone wants to do it again, they shouldn't do it with the regulatory agency because they've sort of already made up their mind uh, how they're going to interpret the data. But you could do another guideline study with a private organization or something that uh, would be more willing to give and take when it came to interpreting the results.
1: You know, John Mayer sings a song titled Clarity. It starts with these words. I worry, I weigh three times my body. I worry, I throw my fear around. But this morning, there's a calm I can't explain. That's so beautiful. Do you think there's hope for the clarity study? Is there hope that we will ever get clarity on BPA or on guideline studies?
0: Well, I think we can turn to John Mayer's song for some of those answers. He also sings these words. And I will wait to find if this will last forever. And I will pay no mind when it won't, and it won't, because it can't. It just can't. It's not supposed to.
1: Wow. Well said. I think we have to have hope that the current situation will change. We can't keep testing chemicals with these old-fashioned methods. We have to embrace better technologies, and we have to do what we can to protect the public.
0: The writing is on the wall for BPA, With hundreds of animal studies showing harmful effects of exposures, as well as more than 100 epidemiology studies revealing associations between exposures and human diseases or dysfunctions, this is a chemical whose time has come and gone. There's no need for any more clarity. It's crystal clear. Like to thank Dr. Pat Hunt from Washington State University and Dr. Jerry Heindel for their special contributions to this episode. A Daily Dose is a production of the Scope Summer Research Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Scope is funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Environmental Health
1: Sciences. These episodes were written and produced by Jillian Hughes, Maíra Lima, Hennessy Medina, Elise Pierce, Hannah
3: Power, and Jody Zismore.